0: Welcome to the Enlightened Discipline Podcast with Scott Stauffer, a certified financial planner in Silicon Valley. The Enlightened Discipline Podcast is about moving you and your family towards better wealth. This podcast is purely educational. It's Scott's way of paying it forward, helping people make better financial decisions. And now, on with the show with Scott Stoffer and co-host Matt Halloran. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to continue with our journey through the 10 steps to a better investment experience. Today, we're going to talk about step number six. So, Scott, let's go ahead and just jump right in. What is number six?
1: Sure, Matt. And, uh, you know, before we get into number six, I wanted to talk a little bit about why we're calling this series 10 Steps to a Better Investment Experience. Good call. Okay. And Yeah. And so, you know, so many times in personal finance, I think we look around at the people who have made millions and and we think we need to do exactly what they have done. You know, they've, they've written books and bestsellers about how to get rich you know, with gold, you know, maybe real estate, hedge funds, options tradings, you know, private equity, you know, buying foreclosures, you see all these things out there of how so many people have, have made money. And you, you can just go to a bookstore in any airport, and you'll see, you know, the top 10 best selling books about how that author made their millions. Uh, sometimes I think they make more money on their books and their speaking engagements than they actually did what they wrote about. But and I, and I don't mean to say that there aren't a lot of people who have, there aren't good personal finance books out there, right, um, because there are. And I'm sure there are people who have, you know, read these books and done well. But the whole idea of the get rich quick strategy is not for most investors. So when we step back and we looked at that, we said, well, what are 10 steps to a better investment experience that people don't have to do these exotic strategies? Sometimes these exotic strategies are what I call the $20 million strategy. In other words, you know, when you have $20 million already set aside, invested to help you reach your goals, then you can use some of those exotic strategies to go make your next $20 million, right? Um, but if you don't have your $20 million yet, there's so much risk and uncertainty in those other kinds of strategies that you really don't need that. What you need instead is 10 steps to a better investment experience. And, and when we talk about the 10 steps to a better investment experience, we're really trying to highlight what some of the academic research is out there that that says this is what you should do, because I think it's important to note about this academic research that, that before we had this, investing was a lot more about speculating, you know, kind of like panning for gold than what investing we know it is today. Prior to the 1950s and 1960s, you know, Wall Street really did promote putting your limited holdings and a few strategic bets, hoping that one or two of them would, would strike it big. And in many ways, Wall Street is still promoting, you know, this sort of ethos today. You know, the marketing is different and, and uh, you know, maybe a little bit more palatable, uh, but the end results still taste the same. It doesn't always work. So I think, you know, academia has always focused a little bit more on what the evidence shows and, and how we can be better investors, not speculators.
0: And, and Scott, so when, this is yeah, – this is really powerful because what you're saying is this has actually been academically studied and backtested, right? I mean, that's that's the idea of of this academic approach that you're taking about, that you're about to talk about right now, that this has been vetted and researched and, and truly understood instead of just being, you know, the next shiny object. Am, am I right there or am I off?
1: You, you are. And and a lot of what enabled this was, you know, there's so much data in, in finance um, and you couldn't really analyze reams and reams of data. Until you had, you know, computers, and so it wasn't until the nineteen, you know, late fifties and sixties that they began to use technology uh, at universities where you had the computing power then, where you could go in and analyze, you know, some of this stuff. Um, and so it's out of that, you know, technology and, and use of technology and research that we have, um, you know, these things that can really help us. And so, uh, you know, one of the first ones that we always talk about came about in 1952. There was a Nobel Prize. Peace winner, Harry Markerich, and, and he published some groundbreaking uh, work in the general finance entitled Portfolio Selection. You know, and in that paper, he introduced the concepts of what we call modern portfolio theory. And, and that's, you know, you hear some people kind of say, oh, it doesn't work anymore. Well, it, it does. But what it did at the time and still does is it upset traditional portfolio selection theories that focused on striking it rich by carefully selecting a few winning investments. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was really going against what Wall Street said at the time. Hmm. And then in 1963, we had additional uh, research come out. It was called the Single-Factor Asset Pricing Risk-Return Model.
0: Whew, yeah, it's a great a name, isn't it? Goodness <laughs> gracious, what the heck?
1: Yeah, you know, in business school, we called that the CAPM, you know, the Capital Asset Pricing Model. And in, in plain speak, it was really a mathematical model that allowed investors to see the relationship between a stock they own in the context of the entire stock market, you know, and, and that that stock's expected return is proportional to the risk relative to the entire stock universe. In 1966, you know, we had research that came out with the efficient markets hypothesis, which basically st- uh, states that you know a stock prices reflect values and information accurately and, and quickly, and that it's it's difficult, if almost not impossible, to capture returns in excess of the market without taking on greater risk than the market. So, you know, these are some things that we've talked about in our earlier podcasts. In in 1981, we had some research around what we call the size effect, where an investor's expected return is is greater for smaller companies than for larger companies. And then in 1991, they had some, some work around what we call the value effect, which basically highlighted that the relative price you pay for a stock when compared to the company's book value, can add a dimension of expected return. You know, hence, we, we talk about it as if value companies tend to outperform growth companies when comparing their relative price. So now when you bring some of these things together, we really had a, a, what we call a multi-factor asset pricing model, where you could look at the market, the size and the value. In 2012, they added in profitability, where you could look at how to measure a company's profitability And that can add a dimension of expected return. So finally, bringing this all back to, you know, the the five steps that we've already talked about. Number one being understanding market pricing. Number two being don't try to outguess the market. Number three being don't chase past performance. Number four being let markets work for you. And number five, take the right risks. It's all rooted in academic research.
0: Well, it's fascinating that you just gave us that, that you know, the history lesson. And I love the fact that you do this, that you talk about this, that you not only teach our listeners, but you teach your clients about this, Scott, because it shows that you are a student of the game, right? And that's really important. Instead of just listening to what Jim Cramer says while he's screaming at you on whatever television show he's on, yeah. you know, this has got some really great foundation. Okay, but this now brings us to step six, which is practice smart diversification. Let's let's dive in, please.
1: I did, and there's one uh, little bit of academic research that I left out from 1995, and it was a research paper, paper titled um, "The Structure of International Stock Returns and the Integration of Capital Markets." Um, again, you know, kind of a, a difficult title, but really, what what it found was evidence of higher average returns to smaller companies in international markets, just like some of the research we talked about from Rolf Bantz in 1981. Essentially, in the long term, international small companies have higher expected returns uh, you know, than international large companies. They behave differently. You know Today, we probably take this for granted, but prior to this research in 1995, most investors had no idea that the same principles driving U.S. markets would also apply to other developed markets outside the U.S., So practice smart diversification, step six of the 10 steps to a better investment experience is really about understanding that diversification is something that we do naturally every day in all of our activities, and it should be the same way for our investments, including investments outside the U.S.
0: So wait a minute here, Scott. You mean that diversification is something we do naturally in everyday life activities?
1: Yeah, you know, in, in fact, sometimes I say, you know, diversification is one of the first two things we do every day. And, and people look at me like, what? And, uh, you know, I, I say, well, you know, we get dressed every day and we normally eat breakfast every day. And, and whether it's choosing the clothes we wear or, or what we have for breakfast, we seldom wear the same clothes every day. We seldom eat the same thing for breakfast every day. We diversify because we know it's good for us, you know, and, and whether it's, it's clothing or, or whether it's our breakfast, we diversify so many things in our lives. Um, you know, sometimes it's the routes we take to work to avoid traffic. Uh, sometimes it's the ways we communicate with our family and friends. You know, we can do phone calls, we can do emails, we can do texting, we can do Instagram posts, fake Facebook posts. We can do all these different things. And this this diversification that we practice without really calling it diversification adds so much depth and experience to our lives. And we need to do that same thing in our portfolios. And sometimes I say, you know, there's four reasons we need to practice smart diversification. And so, you know, number one is not all investments perform well at the same time. You know, we've talked in our other podcasts about how stocks perform differently than bonds at different times. We've also talked about how different companies, large or small, uh, operate differently at, at different times, sectors and markets, all these different things. There's they don't all act in unison together the same way. So, you know, four reasons to practice small diversification. One is not everything performs well at the same time. Number two, different factors influence different investments you know, sometimes uh, there will be policy changes at the government level, and that's gonna impact some industries and sectors more than others, uh, or it's gonna impact certain uh, companies more than others. So that's a reason to to really make sure that we're practicing smart diversification. Number three is it helps you manage investment risk. You know, we've got different investments that carry different risks, and, and we call that investment risk. And so having, you know, different companies from different countries, from different sectors, from different industries, all helps us mitigate that investment risk that we might have if we were invested all in uh, in technology stocks or all in utility stocks, which used to be the way people thought about it mm-hmm. uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the fourth reason that we really wanna look at um, uh, look at you know, practicing smart diversification is average returns can be higher uh, from a from a diversified portfolio over the long run, and so that's just again looking at some of these these longer
0: returns. All right, Scott. Well, these reasons seem pretty straightforward, but it can't be that easy, can it? Well, it it can be, but you know we get caught up
1: in something psychology calls familiarity heuristic, um, and and you're like, what what is that? Um, I can't even pronounce it all the way sometimes. Uh, you know, a heuristic are simple, efficient rules which. People often use to form judgments and make decisions. You know, they're, they're essentially mental shortcuts. So a familiarity heuristic happens when, we, when the familiar is favored over the unknown or the new or the different. And so when we encounter something familiar, we want the new thing to be just like the familiar thing. And when we're under stress or doing some really heavy thinking, some cognitive work, it gets even worse because we regress back to the state of mind in which we have felt or behaved before. So, you know, how does this relate to practicing smart diversification? It means that we have something called home country bias. And we're inclined to believe in and, and root for the things that we know best, the home team the things we hear about all the time the things we're most familiar with and in investing that happens to be the S&P 500 you know most people understand that you don't want to have all your retirement savings in in one company stock they know that you've got to diversify into many companies like the S&P 500 but they stop there because they have a home bias and and what they don't understand is that roughly half of all global companies are based outside of the United States.
0: So you're telling us that to practice smart diversification, we need to be globally diversified too?
1: Yeah, you know, and it, it's almost impossible to avoid international exposure in today's globally you know, interlinked economy. Nearly half of the revenues from US companies in the Standard & Poor's 500 come from overseas. As I just said a minute ago, more than half of the world's market capitalization now lies outside of the
0: United States. But if I only own large US based companies with businesses operated around the world, doesn't that count? Does't I mean, aren't I still kind of doing it, man?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question and, and we, we have that all the time. And, and the short answer is no. You know because stocks um, based outside of the US. perform differently than stocks based inside the US for things that we've already talked about, like government policies can change that can affect one nation's stocks differently than another nation's. So that's one of the reasons that you really still need to have global diversification. If you go back to data from 1970 and you look at the returns of a globally diversified portfolio allocated, you know, to various asset classes with approximately about 30% of the portfolio based outside the US, you would have outperformed the S&P 500 by a margin of 4 to 1. You know, so practicing smart diversification requires, you know, discipline to do that. It means sometimes the S&P 500 is going to be better than a globally diversified portfolio. That's what we've seen the last couple of years, you know, but being broadly and globally diversified with exposure to small value, international emerging market stocks means you have a greater opportunity for more desirable outcome. You know, Matt... I like to reference and, and follow the academic research, and there's a quote I really like from one of the Nobel Peace Prize economists that we've already talked about, Harry Markowitz, the father of modern portfolio theory, and he was the first to demonstrate that really a diversified portfolio can deliver improved performance and less risk relative to individual act, you know, asset classes. You know, he's, was the idea of his research was that you could get something for nothing by diversifying and and it was really unheard of in economics and so he was the one who famously said diversification is the only free lunch in finance Uh, so i like to tell people that if you don't invest globally you're, you're not only narrowing your opportunity set but you're ignoring an important tool that can help you manage volatility and you're also missing out on a free lunch You know, investing globally is is not without risk. You know, this global allocation provides diversification benefits, and it's one of the underpinnings of of modern, you know, sort of wealth management. Um, But we just don't know how any one particular company or stock or market is going to perform. So the idea is to spread your capital around to reduce the risk and smooth out the ups and downs of the market in your portfolio.
0: So practicing smart diversification sounds like a really good strategy, but I still hear a lot of investors talk about timing the market. Can you do that? Can we time the market?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, fortunately, it leads us right into step seven of the 10 steps to a better investment experience. Avoid market timing. And that's what we're going
0: to be talking about in great detail next. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to that conversation. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Enlightened Discipline, brought to you by Better Wealth, proudly serving Silicon Valley for over 15 years. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at BetterWealth.us, where Scott will share his insight on how to stay on track, in control, and achieve what matters.